Oh, oh, hello. Five o'clock and Robin's drinking a beer. This, this is, is Here we go. This is very, very late for me. Very late indeed. Someone <laughs> has been homeschooling. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Um, welcome uh, to this podcast. Uh, this podcast at the moment doesn't have a name. Uh, it does have a, an aim uh, and it has uh, two presenters. Uh, my name is Mark Olver uh, and I'm doing this with uh, the magnificent Ricky Masindo. Hello, Ricky. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm, do you know what? I'm good, thank you, buddy. I'm good. Now, we've got, we've got an aim for this podcast, which is basically you are a new comedian uh, with joy and hope. Um, and how many gigs have you done? Now I've done 22. Literally 22. You've done 22 gigs and you've been gigging for how long? Like just over a year, but lockdown has been happening for, for part of that. Yeah, exactly. I've been gigging since 1998. What year were you born? 1998. Yeah, absolutely bleak. The bleakest, the bleakest <laughs> conversation we will ever have on this podcast. What? What's your birthday? December the 3rd, 98. Oh, no. So I was already gigging for two months by the time you were born. Oh, my God. When you put it like that, that actually sounds horrendous. I am such a baby. So there, there's a possibility. I don't think I uh, I would have because I wasn't gigging in London. But I suppose there's a possibility that Mama Masindo <laughs> could have seen me at a gig with you uh, with you in her belly. You never know, she might bump into him and be like, oh my God, you were that compare who spoke about birthday cake. <laughs> was, uh, did Mama Sindo frequent uh, the open mic clubs of Bristol <laughs> uh, a month or two before you were born? No, I think she was too busy being pregnant for most of that nine yes. months. Yeah. That's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. Um, so, so yeah, so I've been gigging for a very long time. And over 22 years and have done loads and loads of gigs um, and we thought that it would be fun to kind of track your development as a comedian um, and to take out kind of some of the expertise in inverted commas that I have learned while being a comedian but also most importantly accessing the people I know who know more than I know, who can then help you learn more than you know at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that is the literal dream, talking to a bunch of comedians about comedy. But, Ricky, I've had a thought, because we've not, we've not talked about this, uh, we've not talked about the title for the show yet. No. And so I've got an idea, uh, and I want to run it by you, OK? Here we go. Uh, because, do you know what we're doing? You know what this basically is? What? We are essentially doing uh, one of those inspirational teacher-style films. <laughs> uh, so basically, so I am your, uh, so I am your Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. You are. Um, and I was thinking to myself, just to show, so Dead Poets Society was released in. Uh, have you, first of all, have you seen Dead Poets Society? Yeah, yeah, when I was really young, though. 
Okay, so when you so, but you know what Dead Poets Society is about? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, it's a classic. Robin Williams, inspirational teacher. Yeah, oh, Captain, my Captain. Fifties. Well, this is it, Ricky. Yeah. This is what I was thinking. I'm throwing this out as a title for the podcast. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I like that. That is a reference and a half. Yeah. So I, I, was, I was either going that or I was going Dead Comic Society, but I think that felt a bit bleak. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, have you heard of, uh, obviously, you know, Kindergarten Cop? Yeah, classic. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he's not really inspirational teacher. Now, this is the one. Um, uh, have you heard of Dangerous Minds? Yes, I have, but I don't know where from. Okay, so Dangerous Minds is Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, she plays a marine who goes into uh, into a school and teaches all the kind of uh, the inner city kids. But most famously, it's got the song Gangster's Paradise by oh, Julio. Oh, is that? That's why I've heard of it. That's why I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um... And the other one, one of the other incredibly inspirational teacher films, um, is Mr. Holland's Opus. Mr. Holland's Opus. And I was thinking Mr. Olver's Opus. <laughs> and Mr. Holland's Opus is like a high school music teacher. It's kind of like School is School of Rock. School of like Rock. Like years before School of Rock and a bit more serious. Wow, a serious School of Rock. A, se- a slightly more serious school of rock. So basically, who do you see me at? What sort of inspirational teacher do you see me as, Ricky? Well, I mean, now that you've said it... Do you see it, me as Michelle Pfeiffer? Okay, let's not, let's not mess around. You're no Michelle Pfeiffer, no matter how much you try to be. Okay, this is the other thing as well. Like, but Michelle Pfeiffer, this is, Michelle Pfeiffer is definitely one of those... White Saviour films. Yeah, definitely. And and this is one of the things that uh, that we that we have to talk about probably quite early on um, is that uh, you are a young black man and I am an old white man. Uh, this is kind of like this has got sort of driving Miss Daisy vibes about it. <laughs> or um, we ignore we're, we're going to ignore the White Saviour thing, so we should probably ignore Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Yeah, we probably should. We really should. You liked Oh Captain by Captain. I right? did, I did. I love that scene. <laughs> I love that scene. Oh Captain by Captain. It's so corny. Okay, well I'm happy with that then. So I'm happy we we've we've got a working title for the podcast, Oh Captain by Captain. Yeah. Uh we got the vibe of me as Robin Williams. Yeah. And you as all the white boys in the 1950s private school. Exactly. But I have to say, of all the teachers that you mentioned, you do kind of look like Jack Black. Oh, yeah. No, that is a good point. Is that because at this time of recording, I am rocking a slightly ill-advised moustache? Exactly, yeah. That's something Jack Black would definitely do. You know what? Do you know what? I'm happy uh, I'm happy to go uh, School of Cock. Let's not call it School of Cock. <laughs> School of Cock. An 18-plus podcast. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll stick to Oh, Captain, My Captain, but yeah. with Robin Williams as played by Jack Black. Yeah, I like in that. In that situation. I like that title. I really do. So... So you came to me with the idea of this podcast and you didn't realise when you asked me just how bloody inspirational I was going to be. <laughs> but why, uh, what made you want to do it? What made you want to do the podcast? What made you want to come to me and do the podcast? Well, first of all, 
I love chatting shit. And I thought the person I know who's the best at that is Mark Olver. Hello. And I have to ask him. I have to ask him to start a podcast with me. But it's also because definitely you are the person who's the most interested in getting new people into comedy and like um, trying to see uh, what it is about it that stops people who are who are black or minorities from getting into it. So I thought that you'd be the perfect person to do this with me. I'm more than happy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really... We've talked about this quite a lot, but and I'm sure we'll cover this uh, over the series when we talk to different guests because what we're going to do, me and you are going to talk about the stage that you are at at your career and what's great about that is that you've done 22 gigs and so there's so many more exciting things to come um and then in the second half of the podcast um we'll bring in guests who can help us and and give us lots of advice so there will definitely be stuff about uh being someone of color doing comedy being a younger person uh, doing comedy uh doing uh being a student being um a lovely middle-class boy from london who went to a posh school doing comedy there's all <laughs> sorts of stuff that we could talk about but before any i want to know why you wanted to become a comedian what what made you want to do stand-up ah that is a great question it's a great question for me i think it's because for my whole life i thought i was funny but then there was a moment where one of my friends just told me that I am not good at making a room of my friends laugh whatsoever. Like I'm that guy who tells jokes in the living room, holding the room hostage, thinking he's doing a great impression of like Heath Ledger's Joker when really it's just tragic. So I wanted to see if I could actually do it in front of people who don't know me when I can essentially go up there and say whatever. And I also just look up to comedians massively. Like, my biggest celebrity heroes are all comedians. Like I don't really care about Instagram famous people. I just care about people who are funny and can go up in front of a crowd of people and just captivate a whole audience with just words. So, yeah, that was the main reason. Top of your head, and we've not planned this, top of your head, uh, first five comedians who you like or inspire you they can be British, they can be American, they can be new, they can be old. Uh, five people off the top of your head who you would uh, who you would say these are the ones that really inspire Ricky Macindo. Okay, so I'll go for ones that I haven't met because in the- no 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 go for ones you've met as well. That's cool. You could do that as well. Okay. I just want the first five. The, the first, first five. five the they first are. five. So the number one is such a cliche, and I always try and avoid cliches, but it has to be Dave Chappelle, the uh, the 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 man, the myth, the legend. Um, and then second there is actually is actually Russell Russell Howard. He was the one. He was like when I was young watching Mock the Week. That was that was the one that I was like, oh god, to be young, blonde, and funny—that's the dream. Um, and then uh, next would be Chris Rock. Uh, what was it? Bring the pain. I watched that before I did my first proper gig, and that's who I was picturing when I was going up there. It did not turn out like Bring the Pain, but you know, we'll, <laughs> we carry on. Uh, next is uh, actually um, the pub landlord. Uh, could probably be forgetting. Al Murray. Al Murray, yeah, exactly. Because fun fact, Al Murray went to my school. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, weird fun fact there, yeah. Oh, okay, oh, that's good to know. And so did you know... Did you know that he went to your school? Is he like one of the sort of alumni of your school that people talk about? And you're like, oh, wow, Al Murray went here. Yeah, exactly. It's him and Alistair Cook. But it's but it's like, I'm, I think Alistair Cook likes our school, but Al Murray definitely doesn't. I don't think he's come back. I don't think he's come back ever. Oh, okay. Well, we'll try. We'll see what we can do about getting out on the podcast at some point, and we can uh, we could talk about the school. So I think you've got one. So you had Chris, uh, you had Chappelle, Howard, Chris Rock, Al Murray. You've got one more. One more. I think it would probably be someone like. Ah, uh... oh, see, there's so many people. The people. Okay, so here's someone who's not as big, but really inspirational to me is Tom Segura. Oh, I don't know him. He's an American comedian. He's low-key, he's low-key big, but he's not like he has Netflix specials. But it's more I just like his style because it's not, it's not like this is all, this is joke, 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 joke. It's more like I'm going on stage and I'm gonna try and make you laugh. And that kind of style is just so the opposite of what I'm able to do right now. And it's what I want to be able to do at some point. Oh, okay. So I was, because I was just about to say like, I'm, like I've been doing stand up for a long time and and I started stand up because I was a stand up comedy geek like just I loved it so much and I still do but um I don't think I follow as much current stuff as as I used to so I don't really know much about Bill Burr I've not listened to too much of uh Chappelle's recent stuff um I think when I started doing stand up and did it for a living, I maybe, maybe forgot about watching it for fun, watching Netflix specials and listening to albums. And I know lots of my friends love it, but I like, well, it's my job now. And although I do a lot of TV warm up and maybe not as many gigs as I used to, it's a bit like, you know, if you're an accountant, you don't really want to go home then and read books about the best accountants. You know, you're just like, <laughs> oh, just this is what I do. So this, I've got such a such a big area that's missing, probably yeah. from about maybe 2010 onwards. Yeah, where I was so deep into gigging every weekend, gigging every night of the week, that I don't really listen to many of these people. So Tom Sakura, for instance, if I've not seen them and bumped into them in the Edinburgh Festival or bumped <laughs> into them on the circuit or done TV shows that they've been on, then a lot of them have passed me by a little bit, really. That's so interesting. I mean, it makes complete sense. Um, so would you say, like, when you're watching stand-up live... Do you still get the same kind of enjoyment that you used to when you first started, or is it more just watching like other people do stand up on Netflix? Um, I think for a lot of comedians, for a lot of stand ups who uh, are going nowadays, or maybe professional comics, it's really difficult. We watch a lot of comedy uh, stroking our chins, going, <laughs> Oh, yeah, oh, that's clever, oh, yeah. There are certain comedians who make me lose my shit. And I think the reason that they make me lose my shit is that I think comedians, professional comedians, um, 
laugh at being surprised. Yeah. So when something comes out of nowhere, so uh, Matt Ewins, who is a great comic, um, and he does loads of stuff with videos and AV and sound effects and all sorts of stuff. And whenever I go and see him with other comedians, they lose their shit because... Uh, he's doing something that we just would never think about doing. Just the way he writes jokes and stuff is so different. Um, and then there are certain people who, a uh, Canadian comedian called Mike Wilmot, uh, Rob Rouse always does it for me, actually. It just makes me lose my mind. Um, and then people like a James Acaster, who, when I watch Acaster, he does stuff that just surprises me so much. I'm like, oh, wow. But so much other comedy, I think so many comics will watch it and go, oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's good. Oh, I like the way they did. Oh, interesting. You know, and stuff like that. Um, Daniel Kitson is amazing. And uh, when he riffs, uh, he'll he'll come up with stuff and, I'll, and I will not be able to understand where that thought process comes from uh joe wilkinson uh just makes me laugh so so much because it's a surprise i think because uh, joe wilkinson's brain works in a in a different way so you know as a comic you try and see the patterns of speech and patterns of jokes um because you know them it's when someone doesn't do that that you go oh wow yeah. look at that and that's what's funny i think yeah, because you have, I think you have like comics, comics, and then you have comics that are uh, that like usually the public usually like. Because I feel like there's always in like a group of comedians a person who will go up there and will make all the comedians laugh, but might not make that many people in the audience laugh that much. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And but also, so many of those people, I mean, you mentioned Al Murray. Yeah. Uh, do you know what Al Murray's act was? before he did the pub landlord no i have no idea actually so he did an act in the ninth in the 90s uh where he would go up on stage and do the sound effects of guns being put together um <laughs> he would do different military sound effects um and then he became the pub landlord and now he became uh sort of this massive inverted commas mainstream success you know on tv all the yeah. time and look at some of those other people who are on tv all the time matt lucas noel fielding joe wilkinson uh, lily savage uh so many of them started with their stage career of just being weird you know odds you know crazy harry hill harry hill stuff is so surreal um and yet we sort of think, well, Harry's on TV all the time, so he must be, in inverted commas, mainstream. But he's also really weird. He is. He is really, really weird. It's, it's so hard. <clears throat> it's so hard to find the balance between being weird and being too weird. Because it, it, it would be so, like, liberating to just go on stage and just be like, I'm going to be completely weird today and see what happens. I would love to do that at some point. But you will have those moments, and that'll be really fun to talk about in later episodes uh, because hopefully you're going to record some of your gigs and record some yeah. of your uh, your comments after gigs and your thoughts, a little Ricky diary about how the gigs are going. Um, and there will be those moments where you want to take 
take chances because the great thing about stand-up is so much of stand-up you get better by failing you know you get better by dying yeah. on your ass you learn much more from a bad gig than you do a good gig oh yeah um, and again we must talk to comics about you know the things they've done horrendously and the, the the absolute failures they've had and what they've learned from those because everyone's got them everyone has got everyone things. has them definitely i mean i've only done 22 gigs and even i have like somewhere i'm like wow that was a moment where <laughs> it was a moment of growth like i remember my first gig where i was on front of this I was at the front of a room of people, there was about eight of them, and I was there telling things that I thought were jokes. And then on the front row, I don't know if she was a comedian, I don't know if she owned the pub, but she just turned around and started speaking to the person behind her while I was there being like, so I was talking to my mother the other day and and she just turned around having an audible conversation and I didn't know what to do, so I just let her keep speaking and while I was going. Do you know, I'm so excited about this because I think what's going to happen is that you're going to tell these stories and then I'm going to be able to go, oh, wow, that reminds me of what it was like when I'd been gigging for a year or been gigging for six months. Or uh, Every comedian that you meet, everyone who reaches a certain level has gone through pretty much everything. Do you know what I mean? We've all had the people talking on the front row, uh, we've all had uh, the gig that doesn't happen, the gig with no audience, the gig with too many audience, the fight in the audience, the um, the problem with the uh, the problem with the venue, the act before you're doing too long, the act before you're doing too short, the act after you not turning up, the compare forgetting your name, you know, like you forgetting their name, <laughs> like everything that can happen has happened, and so it's going to be really exciting to sort of to spend this time sort of uh, reminiscing about sort all this stuff but also hopefully let's face it hopefully trying to make you better because you want to be better like every comedian when they've been going for a year just gets ambitious and and wants to be better is that right oh 100% yeah it, it it's it's literally the thing that I love about it is the fact that you can get better and it's kind of like the better you get the better you do generally like it it's almost like it really is like a meritocracy. Cause I like because the thing that I always say when my friends ask me, oh, like, it, it, like why do you do stand up? It must be really difficult and stuff. And it's like, yeah, it is. But let's say if I wanted to be a singer or something, no matter how big I get, there always be someone who's singing in their bathroom who's better than me, who probably does opera at the weekends or whatever. But there's no one who's a world class stand up comedian just telling jokes to themselves in their mirror. You really do, like, the better you get, the further you get. It, it it almost does work like that most of the time, but sometimes, obviously, it doesn't. Yeah, I, do you know what? I, th- I do think you're right. I do think you've got a point. Uh, we'll definitely have conversations with people about whether comedy is a meritocracy. What we're going to have to do is go through this chat and go through the words and go, we must have a conversation about meritocracy. We must have a conversation about... Because... Uh, because it is true, but there are arguments against that. But what I would say is, whenever someone sees a comedian on TV and they think to themselves at home, oh, they're not very good, what they don't realise is that 
that person has got on TV because they're good, because they do well at clubs, because they've done well in Edinburgh, because they've done well at run-throughs for TV shows. They don't accidentally stumble onto the TV screen. You know, producers and commissioners and people have watched these people and have gone, yeah, no, you can do it. And and some of the people, you know, you're, the best example is Michael McIntyre, who mm. you said earlier that, you know, there are some comedians that, that comedians uh, that are comics, comics, mm. and and then by dint of that, you're sort of like, well, maybe there are comics who aren't comics, comics, and yeah. Michael McIntyre is, you know, one of the biggest acts in the world, and and actually, I think people at home would be surprised by how much comedians rate Michael McIntyre, mm. how many comedians realize how brilliant he is at what he does and some of us will have gigged with him in clubs and the thing about michael is that the reason michael became the big arena superstar is it was really difficult for any other comedian in a comedy club to be on the same bit as michael because he was just destroying every single gig that he did and there are Lots of people like that that we know. Russell Howard is one of them. You know, it was just really difficult to be on a gig with that person because they were so good. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, I I definitely have felt that even at my level, going like at open mics and stuff like that, where it's like I'm I'm on with people where I'm like, you really need to stick with this. It's, 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 it's mad how you can see the potential so early on in people. And I just, I've literally just said to people, keep going, because this is literally made for you. I love the fact that you're giving people advice at 22 gigs. That's so brilliant. (laughs) When you have it, you just give the advice wherever you can. Well, I suppose what you're saying is you've seen people and you've gone, oh God, you're good. Like you're, yeah. It's so, it's difficult to kind of uh, separate the, oh yeah, well done from, no, you need to carry on. You really are talented because you're never going to walk off stage and people are like, you need to stop. This is awful. That was really bad. Most of the feedback you get a lot of the time will be positive. And it's like, it's good to hear when someone is actually good at it that they should continue. So uh, I want you to tell me. So after when we have a chat uh, and we have this chat, what do you what do you think you need to maybe what do you want to learn? I suppose if I, I'm going back to being uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jack Black, Robin Williams, what do you what do you think you want to learn uh, generally over these episodes? Because what's going to happen is that things are going to change. So hopefully we can do a few of these um, every year, and your career will change and develop and all that sort of stuff. And we'll be able to talk about lots of different things. We'll be able to talk about Edinburgh shows, and we'll be able to talk about getting money for gigs, and we'll be able to talk about uh, tours and, and and then you'll be able to talk to me about your Hollywood film and, and it'll be absolutely amazing but at the moment you're someone that's been gigging for a year and you've done 22 gigs so what do you want to learn now as someone that's done 22 gigs I want to learn mostly how to move forward in stand-up from a from a like a practical sense, but in the like actual performing sense, I want to learn how to figure out how to be more myself on stage, because 
people who've watched me have said, yeah, you're being yourself, but in my head, I don't feel like I'm actually being the natural me on stage. I feel like I've written some material and I'm going to perform it. And that's probably something that probably comes with time. But I just, I just like, I just really am interested when you speak to comedians like Joe Wilkinson or, um, or even you or like Russell, where it's like, you can tell this person is themselves on stage. Like I remember there was one point where we were at a gig somewhere and you were having a conversation in the green room about birthday cake and then you just took it on stage, like literally next. Then you just started asking the question to the room. So just that kind of thing that I, I want to get better at. So when you talk about wanting to get better and developing, at this moment, you're not interested in money, gigs, all that stuff. You're much more interested in learning how to be a comic. Is that right, would you say? Yeah, 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 definitely. Because, I mean, it's like, if the money comes, great. But I do actually just enjoy doing it. It is actually just a lot of fun. And it's, it's, it's a creative thing as well where it can be anything. So that's kind of what I want to get better at, actually doing the comedy. Oh, okay. So that's good. So I reckon for, let's say... Let's say six episodes. Let's say we'll, we'll start with six. So this is this will be episode number one. Uh, maybe we'll do six. Maybe we'll do ten. Maybe maybe we need to do 15 in, in case it turns out that you're shit. Maybe we need to do... Maybe we need to do a couple now. And then because uh, we're recording this um, in January 2021 when we're in the middle of a lockdown. So you can't actually do any live gigs at the moment. Yeah. So maybe we need to do a couple of these before live gigs start happening again. And then when you start gigging again, we can do a few more and see what you're learning and what you need to kind of develop. And I'm saying this straight away because I know there will be people listening to this going, but Olver is not famous. Olver <laughs> is also not the best comedian. Olver, <laughs> he's got his skills. He's got his place in the world. Um, but why is he giving advice? I am not giving advice. I am facilitating the advice that comes from much cleverer people than me. I am a <laughs> conduit. That's a good way. Uh, so I am I am not taking any responsibility apart from if you do become a multimillionaire superstar, I will take all responsibility and that will be read out in the court case. But <laughs> at this stage... We are just talking about, we're going to get some of my uh, favourite people in. Um, and, and I mentioned it earlier, so, uh, and you mentioned it as well. Do we need, how would you feel if I line up six guests and all of those six guests are white men with beards? <laughs> like, do, do you want me to ask someone I non-white friend they might have beards or not beards but like do, do you want to learn from a variety of people are you happy with six slightly fat white men i am happy with six slightly fat white men i i i think that would be that would be good i mean variety is nice too but i think the best thing would just be to think who can teach me this specific thing or who would be interesting to talk to but there's nothing wrong with slightly fat white men <laughs> <laughs> that's true but there's also nothing wrong 
black men, uh, nothing wrong with slightly fat, <laughs> and uh, white women, black women. I think we should, uh, we'll, we'll mix it up. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll try and have a nice range, because I do think the thing that's interesting about stand-up is the, the most important thing about stand-up is the stand-up. Uh, is the person, is what they do. And yeah. the great thing about, I think, about uh, the circuit, about uh, the people I know, about friends of mine, is I live in a fairly white suburban part of Bristol. Um, it's so great to have met so many people, you know, meeting Australians, Canadians who live over here. So I think that's one of the big... Uh, one of the things that I think we should we should try and do is having a nice range of um, supply teachers for Ricky Masindo. <laughs> Those sound great. Um, well, I say we get started then. We, we, we'll do this interview and... Uh, and then we'll maybe come back another time and we'll talk about what you have learned from this interview. Perfect. Sounds like a plan. So people at home, have a listen. And, uh, and yeah, and then Ricky will, uh, will take questions uh, and, uh, and some sort of comprehension test. And we'll <laughs> see if he gets 10 out of 10 uh, on this first episode of Working Title. Um, oh, Captain, my Captain. Ricky has just started doing stand-up, and I thought it would be a good opportunity uh, to bring in an amazing stand-up comedian, an amazing person, to talk about everything stand-up-wise, Ricky, to give you, like, another perspective that isn't just my own. Um, and uh, we've got Robin Morgan here. Hello, Robin. Hi. Okay. And I just I wanted to get you involved because I was worried. So, basically, I've decided that I am... Uh, Either Michelle Pfeiffer in uh, Dangerous Minds or Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. So I was sort of thinking that I could get Rob, uh, get Ricky to stand up on a desk and shout "Captain, oh Captain" to me, and you know that sort of stuff. But I think I needed to bring in someone who was less of a megalomaniac than me. Okay, so, sure. uh, so that's why you're here. Sure. Am I also here to point out that that might be Dead Poet Society? Oh, what did I say? Um, Goodwill Hunting, but I don't. I, oh yeah, oh yeah. I don't well, think I'm here so as a fact checker. I think I'm here as. A, but I, I just I can see I can see us going viral for the wrong reason. Of my- but in fairness <laughs> to me, in fairness to me, Robin Williams does also play like a sort of inspirational sure. figure yeah, in Goodwill yeah. Hunting as well. For sure, he does. correct. It's not your fault. I sort of see myself as a variety of. Uh, I say, Ricky, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you. I see myself as a father figure, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Just to everyone in general or to me specifically? Um, specifically to you, Ricky Masindo. Just you, just for the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I see you as a father figure too, definitely. And the problem is, as we all know, uh, people always get on better with their uncles than they do their dads. Um, so we've got Uncle Robin here. Um, <laughs> Uncle Robin. <laughs> this is this is not the nickname I have wanted. It feels like oh, my dad's mates been like coming around and giving me advice. You know, like that used to happen. You're like, okay, dad's friend, you can piss off. That. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that's literally what I was going for for the format of the show. I'm just Ricky. That's uh, have you got many real uncles, Ricky? Um, I think I have five. <laughs> like I lost count. You got six now, man. You yeah, got six now. <laughs> I've got six now. Don't look very much like the others. 
What do you mean you think you've got five? I mean, because because my, my parents both have a lot of siblings, but I'm like, are they siblings or are they friends of my parents? I've never really asked. They just tell me to call them uncle, pretty much. This is a isn't this a thing in the Indian community that there's lots to like like older men are like uh, uncle and older ladies are like are like aunts. So have you just got loads of uncles and aunts who might be related to you but aren't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's a couple of people that I call auntie who are just definitely not related to me, as in like they're English. So like they definitely aren't in my family, but. Apart. Do you mean they're Caucasian? Yes, I, they, I mean they're Caucasian. They're <laughs> white. They're white. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I kind of sussed that quite early that, no, we're not family, but I'm still meant to call you auntie. <laughs> There's something about <laughs> There's something you. Something about you, Auntie Dolores. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will be glad to know that, uh, that Uncle Robin, I'm sticking with it, Robin, deal with That's it. Fine. That That's Uncle fine. Robin is white. <laughs> um, but uh, for the purpose of the day, he could be anything you want. But I wanted to know, Robin. Uh, so Ricky's done just over twenty gigs. Can you remember? So how's that? How long is that, Ricky? That's about a year. Yeah, just over a year, like a year and a half. But but Robin didn't have a global pandemic in the middle of that. No, he didn't. He didn't. So hey, you don't know. Tw- 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 twenty ten was a big year. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was. So Robin, when did you start doing stand up? Um, in July of 2010, um, thinking about um, the, the fact it's sort of like 22 gigs in, I still have a note on my phone where I um, wrote down every single gig I did up until about gig 1000. And I'm going to get it up now. What? Wow. On, what? What? Get the, the get the note up. What? No. Wait. You? No. 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 That's not what <laughs> I was worried about. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't care about the system. I care about the fact that you made a note for every gig until your thousandth gig. So it started off when I was like in my sort of uh, yeah. I guess at, at sort of Ricky's point, I had my first notebook, and in the back of that notebook, on the on the back cover of it, I wrote down a list of the of the gigs I'd done, and then I got an iPhone, maybe like a year into when I was doing stand up. That's how long ago it was, and I transferred that into notes, and then just carried on doing it. And it got to the point where it was probably last Edinburgh, yeah, last Edinburgh, so twenty nineteen. I then was doing about six gigs a day and got tired of putting them in. The last <laughs> one was one thousand and forty eight. Wow. Was the last gig I put in. And that was last so 2019, August, probably. Yeah. Is that is that mad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's absolutely fucking insane, mate. Yeah, it's, actually. it's a bit low-key crazy. Like the serial killer writing at the back of their notebook. 1030. <laughs> well, it wasn't like sort of like I, I died died at this gig and so did everyone else. <laughs> like it was just um it it started as just kind of I guess quite a casual thing. And then I thought it would be quite nice to it was all in preparation for this podcast. I knew it would happen. <laughs> oh well like, do you know what? I it's something that I've never done, and it's probably something I should have done. Like I've never been one to record my gigs either. But while we've got this in front of me, um yeah. can you tell me what 777 was? <laughs> I, can. I can and will. I mean, I probably I probably messed up at some point. Oh, this is... Ricky, what do you... Um, Ricky, because you're like an academic. You're a bright young man. Is this the type of thing that you can imagine yourself doing? Oh, I do not have the patience at all. <laughs> like, I can't even tell you what my last gig was, <laughs> let alone 1,077. Wow, well, Robin is just about to tell us what 777 is. 
So this, uh, I was emceeing Comedy in the Dark in Edinburgh. So that was 2018. It looks like it was possibly the first time I'd come, I'd come had that gig. So it would have been like the first Thursday of 2018's Fringe. You, I love the way that so casually you've just said, you've said that out loud and you just think this is a really normal thing to be able to see what you were I, doing on the first Thursday in August in 2018. I mean, I haven't, I haven't put the date in there because I'm not weird, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I generally like, I, I can't be the only comic to have started doing this. I guess like I did stop two years ago because I thought it's getting, it's getting a bit silly. <laughs> But I think it's quite nice. Like I get to sort of work out like the year my son was born, I didn't gig as much as the previous year because I wasn't really traveling that much. And I was also writing for the BBC a lot at that point. So I didn't need to gig that much. There's, you know, it's nice, nice to look back when, especially this year when my career has gone to shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> Is that all the notes you put? You don't put more detailed notes in about, because I know some people will put in their diary, uh, did this gig tonight. I know uh, Morgan Reese, who I'm sure will get as a guest on this podcast at some point. Um, he'll like, he's really sort of that Taipei personality and will write the material that he did at, each gig and I know when I used to gig with Russell Howard loads when we were open spots he would write the material that he did at every gig so he knew uh what he was doing the next time basically so I didn't um I suppose in various notebooks like before I go on in whatever notebook I've got I'll write down the sets that I I will do whether or not I do that I don't know so I suppose I could find various notebooks and look at them I did find like a really old notebook the other day when I was going through some stuff so I could probably work out what I was doing at certain gigs yeah but really what I was um on the first page it did actually have the first date of my first gig and then in brackets four gigs later my first 10 and then 20 gigs later my first 15 first MC spot so I guess there's like specifics in that way but not you did that same joke you've been doing for six years Robin <laughs> uh, Ricky we uh, the whole point of this podcast really is to 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 help Ricky progress and get advice from uh, from other people. I mean, straight away, Ricky. Uh, podcast uh, number one. Uh, we've got the keep an insane diary of every gig you ever did until <laughs> 2018. Um, what do you think, Ricky? Is this something that you can imagine yourself? To- you said you haven't got the patience, but do you think this is something that could be useful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely useful. Like, I can see why it would be something that's helpful. Like, especially now you can look back and be like, oh, I remember that gig. I shouldn't have done that thing. Oh, maybe I should try bringing this back. I don't know. But it's like, I think um, I think it makes sense. I almost feel like I should start again from gig one and just write the list all the way through because it would be really helpful. I guess you could, though, because you're, 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 you're on 22, right? So if you, you could in theory look back and start again like that I, I wonder whether my system and I'm calling it a system that I don't think it is a system, <laughs> um, is, isn't isn't that beneficial because you can't do as as Oliver said what Russell Howard or what Morgan do where you go oh I did this like Clint Edwards is another person who because he does loads of sort of emceeing I think he knows what he said at various gigs so he knows not to do the same material the next mm. time for mine, I just know where I was roughly in the year, kind of like a series of alibis. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. I mean, I did a show in 2011 in Edinburgh called Over Portrait of a Serial Killer, where the point of it was 
that Coddy would be a really good cover to become a serial killer. Yeah, man, for um, sure. Yeah, and so if you're Robin Morgan and uh, you've been murdering people, I basically, I always thought to myself <laughs> that if I was gigging in London and living in Bristol, there were loads of places on the way from Bristol to London that I could nip into for 20 minutes or so, commit a murder, get back on the motorway, and that would be a perfect alibi. So... <laughs> Um, because people are going, well, he can't have done it because he'd be doing, he was doing uh, just a tonic in Reading. How can he kill someone in Newbury? And I'd be like, well, <laughs> yeah, that's what the well, A34's the, for. The audience saw that the bloodied compare <laughs> arrived. <laughs> that you thought about that on the way to the gig rather than on the way back from the gig. Yeah, I mean, those lonely car journeys, they do drive you mad. <laughs> So, Ricky, what's your system at the moment for remembering these gigs then? Have you have you got any system? Yeah, and it's almost as crazy. I take a picture of each, like, uh, at the stage beforehand. So I remember, like, oh, yeah, that's what it looked like. And then when I go through my memories, I can be like, oh, yeah, I remember that gig. That's when I did this, this, and this, and this. As, like, a trigger to remember. But I don't write next to it, like, oh, yeah, I was... I stood on the stage, then I moved to the right. I took a breath there or anything like that. We're not, we, we are also not saying that that's what Robbie does. Just no, so no, that, you know, no, we're no. not saying that, that, that Robin goes forensically through these gigs <laughs> going, I breathe there. Well, this might be the tip of the iceberg. We never know. I'd I'd argue that the uh, the photos would give you more detail because you've got like a date and a timestamp on these and a location and a geotag. Oh, like yeah. it feels like it's 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 on a par with with me. That is know. true, actually. That oh is, yeah, but also really... I think it shows a real difference between uh, someone in his uh, I'm going to say early thirties and someone in his early twenties. That Robin is still using iPhone Notes. Oh and sure, yeah. Ricky seems to be using. <laughs> In Instagram and TikTok as some sort of record for every gig he's ever done. That's what happens when you are a child. Yeah, amen. It's very, very true. <laughs> the technology is definitely there, isn't it? Can we go through this list and find out what number 22 was? Can we? Uh, yeah. So that's where Ricky is at the moment. Oh, both of you can do this. This is exciting. Sure. So Ricky can go through his photos. Morgan can go through and we can work out... Um, uh, what they were, uh, what so Ricky, you shouldn't because gig 22, I'm guessing, was your last gig before, yeah, like, this lockdown, yeah, yeah, it was. Surely it was a gig I ran, right? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, most of them have been, so yeah, let's <laughs> <laughs> not mess around here. Uh, yeah, Mr. Wolf's, Mr. Wolf, Mr. Wolf's, okay, new material. Was that the one where we did the upstairs and the downstairs on the same night? Yeah, the upstairs and downstairs, yeah. Like the outside and inside. Lovely gigs, two lovely small gigs on a Sunday night. This is when Robin uh, tells us uh, that his 22nd gig was uh, closing the Swansea ground in front of 1,500 people. <laughs> and he just puts next to it in brackets, oh, standing ovation. <laughs> um, no, sa sadly, sadly not. I. Um, it was, it's just as time flies, in my notes, which I believe was a gig run by somebody. This is like really early 2011. I think it was someone who used to do quite a lot of sort of club night stuff, like music club nights, and then ventured out into comedy. And I feel like it was at, it's a venue in Cardiff on Wellfield Road, the, called The Globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um and a few gigs tried to start there and i feel like i would have probably done an open spot and not done very well i think i think it's weird how like i literally sort of some of these things i've written down do spark little memories back which is weird to me like i haven't thought about that in a decade (laughs) (laughs) it is but i think we could probably dig into it because i think that's the thing about stand-up is that like i can forget about certain bits of material that even exist. And then as soon as someone says, oh, you've not done that bit for ages, I'll be like, oh, shit, yeah. And then I can run through that entire bit of material in my head, even though I forgot of the existence of it. Mm. And I think gigs are the same. I can forget about the existence of a particular gig in Sirencester or the particular gig in uh, Porth. Uh, in the valleys and then as soon as someone might remind me of it or as soon as I see a sign for Porth I'm like oh I remember that's the gig that during the show I was I was lining up the rest of the microphone stands behind me to make it look like the Armada I remember (laughs) that uh, I remember that gig and I can remember almost perfectly the food I got on the way and the journey and the people I was on with but if someone was to tell me just you know, I don't know, have you been to Porth? I'd be like, not a clue. And then, oh, shit, yeah, I had this incredible <laughs> experience in Porth, which, incidentally, is an absolute shithole. Um, and the gig was at the Pop Factory? Yeah, I never did it. I I, I think it was it, probably when I started, they they started doing gigs there. And I remember, always remember applying for gigs, like applying for open spots there and never getting it. But in Porth, I think in a similar part of that building where it was, I used to hire... Um, sound systems and mic stands from there for the first gig I ever ran, which you did the opening night for, Oliver. Was that the one at the bottom of St. Mary Street? Correct. You did uh, some new material in the middle that you read off your phone. And I remember thinking, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think, do you know what? I did some new material that night. And I've I've talked to Ricky about this material um, because I did some new material that night because... um, I, I was seeing a girl and I didn't see her for very long, but her mum was Jamaican and her dad was Ghanaian. And whenever I would talk about this on stage, um, I only tried it three or four times. The predominantly white audiences would look at me and go, I'm fairly sure that's racist. And why are you <laughs> telling me that this girl had an unusual character because of her mum and dad's different backgrounds? And then when I tell black friends of mine, and I've, I think I've told you this story, haven't I, Ricky? Yeah, yeah, people yeah. People are like, well, that is... Like, black people or people with African relatives or West Indian relatives will go, well, that is a weird mix. <laughs> that, that is a very weird mix. That is a very weird mix. <laughs> Two very, like, passionate types of people. But two passionate, different types of, of of people, two different personalities with like a, a Caribbean upbringing and an African upbringing is definitely going to clash. But yeah, white friends of mine, and I can, and people who are listening to us on podcasts, you can't see, but Robin Morgan has the most straight poker face in the world. <laughs> I don't really want to get involved in this conversation. Just like, hear, 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 hear. <laughs> no, no one needs to hear my fucking opinion on this. <laughs> Imagine if you just came out like, yeah, them Jamaicans. <laughs> But for anything else would be very uncouth. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, but how weird is that? That I remember doing that bit of material at that gig. Uh, 
this gig and Ricky, I hope some of this is helping, but I remember that gig because um, it was one of those gigs. It was upstairs and I remember the stairs curving up to get up it. So it was never totally separated from the venue downstairs. Correct. And they also, um, because it was never meant to be in that venue. And then the venue that we were supposed to have it in closed down a month before, because it was all a brains pub, they threw us into a different brains pub. Uh, but the venue were quite cool. But yeah, there was noise bleed and every now and then the kitchen, it was always dead on a Monday night. So we were bringing everybody in. But the, whenever there was a one food order for downstairs, they used to insist on honking like one of those all <laughs> horns. <laughs> so just, and if someone's about to get to a punchline then. <laughs> just pretty consistently for I think, I think the year we did it there. Uh, Ricky, is there? Um, so you've done. So your twenty second gig was Mr. Wolf's. Yeah. Uh, in Bristol, have you found talking because you sort of you've had a weird twenty two gigs in the sense that you've done quite a lot of open spots in Bristol, quite a lot of gigs around, but then you've also. Uh, sort of supported Russell Howard at the Lakota in Bristol. So, like, you've definitely had, <laughs> like, you've definitely had a range of experiences already. Oh yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's been so strange, literally, just because of the global pandemic. It's like I've just been, I've just done so many different types of gigs, pretty much because you've tried to find a way to make the six people per table thing work as well as possible in any venue. So I've pretty much just done loads of different stuff. And I like at the beginning I was doing um, probably more normal open mics in like London or whatever, where you'd book online. But then it turned into Mark Oliver would just message you being like, oh, are you around? And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I'll just come to whatever, whatever's given to me, essentially. I think someone said to me, Robin, I can't remember who it was, but uh, a mutual friend said, oh, yeah, Robin Morgan said that Mark Oliver was basically uh, all of my gigs in maybe August and September. Oh, yeah, totally. When, when, when things started opening up, because I'm in Wales, we, did, we weren't allowed to and still aren't allowed to sort of do any performances. So you basically gave me everything over, <laughs> over that, that period where we weren't locked up. Ricky, what I find really interesting in the fact that like you've done the most, I, I guess the majority of your gigs during this period, is you've done so many outdoor gigs, which I think most comics of, you know, who would have been going X amount of time would have hated the idea mm. of doing outdoor gigs because they th shouldn't in theory work in these situations where, you know, you're on a rooftop and it's, it's cold or it's, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, and you've, you've done so many gigs that people wouldn't have even wanted to do, you know, a decade or two in. And mm. I think that that's, that's exciting for, well, me at least to know that kind of you've done, you know, you can perform at those and yeah. they're fucking hard ones to do. Yeah, yeah. No one, no one told me that they that outdoors was meant to be any harder. Yeah. I just turned up and just tried tried my best essentially. Yeah. But like I have I have done a couple indoors during COVID, um, like at um smoke and mirrors, like social distance and stuff. And like mm. I when I went on stage, I felt the difference like instantly. There, that's when I realized for the first time that. I'd essentially been doing gigs that were so hard for my entire time. Totally. You're doing it with a handicap. And I think sort of, and even that, like, as you say, like going indoors in a social, because I've done that smoke and mirrors one since it's changed into socially distant. And even then I, when I did, I was like, oh, that's not the same as when it's full. Mm. Like you've, 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 you've done the hardest level and now you're working yourself <laughs> back into normality. It's lovely. It's really cool. I can't wait for normality. <laughs>
Do you, well, well, that's a good question. Do you think that normality is better? Because I'm now thinking to myself, actually, maybe I don't want normality. Maybe I want, because I'm quite good at festival type gigs, which is why uh, I think I was able to set up a lot of these outdoor gigs and make them feel like normal gigs. And Green Man and uh, Red and Needs and Latitude, but also the smaller festivals, but also things like, the Woodland Pavilion at MacFest, which is kind of quite a well-known stupid gig because it's literally a stage in the middle of some woods with no running order, no lineup, no audience. And then I gather people in, like I think go into the glee or go, like, I think I'm now at this stage where I'm like, oh no, I need the madness. I need the weirdness to be able to make it nice for me, really. One thing we don't have at the moment is people aren't coming out unless they really want to. You know, occasionally mm. at actual comedy clubs when it's full <coughs> on a normal night, there will be people who are just dragged out by their partner or their friend on a birthday on a works do. Whereas if you want to go out to comedy during COVID, you really want to go and see comedy <laughs> to go to jump through all the hoops and stuff. So I suppose that um, that level of uh, goodwill and good faith that I think we've got as performance by audience members, that's something that will be interesting to see whether that um, continues or how long that continues for once this is all over. Ricky, what did it feel like doing a gig with a roof over your head then? Uh, oh, it felt, first of all, it felt warm. Like, let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> out of the way. Like I was like, cause I kind of um, got to the point where whenever I was doing stand up, I just always expected that I needed to like button up or something like that. But like <laughs> actually doing it in a room with like central heating actually made me realize that, like there was so much more freedom moving my arms but like I think it was weird because I actually felt like I could I was speaking to the people I was performing to like it's a very like strange difference when you're on a like a rooftop where it's like socially distanced outside and you're not really meant to be uh, like people aren't really meant to be shouting anything or anything. But when you're inside in an actual room, it actually feels like I'm having a conversation with the people who are in this room right now instead of just being someone on stage performing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think what you'll probably find is that because some of these gigs you've done outside, like the the one that I ran at. Well, Lakota, there were loads of people there breaking bread on the downs, like the size of the audience as well. So when you went to somewhere like Smoke and Mirrors, where there were only 20 people socially distanced, you can talk to each of them individually yeah. because there's only 20 there. But if you're doing 150, 200, then you're kind of, you're doing that rather than being able to talk to people individually. But I think the best comics are the ones that can make it look as if they're talking to people individually, even though they are talking to uh, 150, 200, 10,000. If you're Michael McIntyre, you feel like you're in the audience and he's just having a conversation with you. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting, actually, because it's like, I I think for me, like, I, and I've, I've said this to you before, like, the thing that I struggle with the most with doing stand-up is getting to a point where I feel like what I'm saying is what I'm saying in the moment instead of a pre-prepared joke that's been written like um, kind of synthetically. So being able to feel like I'm actually having a conversation in the moment is like the biggest thing that I want to be able to do. I think for the fact that Robin uh, 
does stand up, but also writes and probably writes more than I do. And I know I've seen you do new material where you've actually written it. I suppose you, you have a thought on this, the idea, because I tend to go on stage and, and talk shit and hope for the best that it comes out. And actually I, I run it through on stage. So I don't think I've ever, apart from maybe Edinburgh shows, sat down and typed out my stuff or, or written it out longhand. I will work through that process on stage. I'm guessing Robin, that your process is different. I'm going to guess right now that you've got some sort of color coded post-it note for <laughs> jokes. Uh, no, it's kind of like a mix of the two, I suppose. Like I've got Google Docs and like Microsoft Word Docs on my computer that have like new jokes 2021. I've got notes in my phone with just little silly ideas that either I've written down or dictated when I'm in the car. And then I'll have notepads with just silly things scribbled out. But Edinburgh, I think, is the best way for me to write. I'm, I'm a prolific writer when I write for other people when they do TV. But for myself, up until maybe... 18 months ago I found it really hard to use that same kind of work ethic for myself I suppose because I know their voice and I know it's for this job and it's for this show uh when I'm writing for other people but for me it was only until about 18 months ago when I felt like that show that I was writing was oh that's me this is who I am this is who I'm what is this is what I'm talking about so for previews like top secret is one of my favorite places to do a preview of an hour in the afternoon and I go on with a notepad I do sort of five ten minutes of comparing and then I just read stuff out and kind of work stuff out now on stage where I have an idea of, oh, gender reveal parties are fucking stupid, aren't they? And then I'll talk about that for a little bit. Probably one of the best jokes in my last Edinburgh show came up from when I was talking about it and I just said something out loud and then that the punchline appeared fully formed as I said it out loud. Yeah, I've got a joke about um, a story that really happened about doing a gig uh, about phoning in uh, Radio 2 and pretending that my neighbours have got a llama. And I used to, and I still do that piece of material and it still works. And the story is true until the punchline. So I, I texted in, my neighbours have got a llama. Uh, I then got on Radio 2. I then talked to Jeremy Vine about my llama. Uh, and then they said, the end was, that's the best llama impression I've ever heard. And that's what happened on the show. And I was trying it as stand-up because I knew it was funny, but it just wasn't working. And then one day I was at a gig that wasn't even a very good gig. It was like one of those weird cabaret gigs you do where <laughs> you know you're doing stand-up, but someone's doing a bit of poetry and someone's doing something else as well. And so I was just very relaxed. And rather than doing the, that's the best llama impression I've ever heard, I, I said... When they said, oh, that's not a llama, that is an alpaca, which changes the whole thing, makes the whole thing a story, makes the whole thing a setup and a punchline. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I genuinely have no idea where that came from. So I think, Ricky, that's the thing. Like, I don't think you should... I don't think anyone should try and... <laughs> Have you seen that thing, Robin, where sometimes you'll meet someone, they'll go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to improvise the whole lot. And then yeah. it invariably is shit. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing that you should... So Ross Noble did not improvise the whole lot. Eddie Izzard did not improvise the whole lot. Even Phil Kay, who is one of the best improvisers, didn't improvise the whole lot. You know, they they knew what they were doing. They had written stuff. They just then... Uh, played around with it on stage a little bit. And is that what you're saying, Robin, that you sort of reached that point at top secret when you're trying new stuff that you're happy to 
to play around with it a bit more. I think so. And that, and that probably would have been late spring, early summer. So like the show was getting there. Like I knew what it was. I kind of knew what the vibe of it was. So everything kind of worked in that moment. But then I suppose um, I'd been tr- probably trying versions of that idea of a joke for a while. And I suppose similar to you with the, um, with the um, alpaca line, it's formulating. You know, if you do something, your brain is working. It's, it's ticking stuff over. And then I suppose once you're in that relaxed environment, that's when the sort of, I mean, I'm not, I don't know any science. Synapse? <laughs> I don't know, mate. Sy- when the synapse connects, then that's like, <laughs> that's when it sort of comes out and works. And I think that's why I try and do as much different styles of writing as possible, like writing stuff by hand, typing stuff down, dictating. If I've got, if I'm doing an hour show, I'll try and perform it to the mirror with a little notebook out. And then I'll write down little bits and bobs. If I'm driving to a long stage time, and I want to do new stuff, I'll speak aloud in the car. Because I think all those different methods of writing form together and eventually something will come out of one of them, surely. Um, in future episodes, uh, I will try and get uh, uh, head man and comedian Dean Burnett on to talk about synapses, uh, <laughs> partly because uh, I also want to talk to people about, because uh, Ricky is a medical student, and so when Ricky heard the word synapse, Ricky, don't, don't do the, um, <laughs> you are actually a medical student, Ricky. Yeah, I am. I am. God, you, you are literally would be the least comforting doctor. I, so, <laughs> oh, hi doctor. Well, before we get started, I want to, I don't really, I don't really identify as a doctor. <laughs> Let's not put labels on it. Doctor slash comic. <laughs> But you're doing like, aren't you doing like specifically neurology at the moment? Yeah, 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 I am. Yeah, neuroscience. So I'm doing a, a degree in neuroscience. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So talk to us about synapses, please, Ricky. I mean, if you want me to bore you to death, I'll do it. Was I right? Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> let's let's go with that. I got a B. I got a B at GCSE. I'll give you a B plus. Thanks, dude. <laughs> but I love the fact that, that Ricky is not going into any of these details. I thought he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm not really a doctor. I'm sort of doing neuroscience, but fuck it. Synapses sounds like a word. I'm now, com- <laughs> I'm now suspicious that Ricky isn't really a medical student. This is what I'm thinking. I think he's so sick of having applause every Thursday that he's just like, please, no, <laughs> no more for me. I'm full. I'm full. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a man. <laughs> But, but you, Ricky, you must have like you are a you are a clever man. You're you're at a good university. You're doing a, de- a good degree, so you've obviously got that academic side to you. I have always done academically as much as I can get away with. So I got a two-two <laughs> in my degree because I did as much as I could get away with. Um, I got like an A, a D, and an N at my A levels because I did enough that I could get away with. But Ricky, you you must have a a slightly academic brain to do the course that you do. Can you use some of those skills to help with your stand-up? Yeah, yeah, no, I th- okay, yeah, I think so. Cause it's like, I would say I do have an academic brain in a very weird way. Like, I think it's it's that when I look, when I look at things and when I'm doing things, like whether it's academics or like comedy or whatever, I feel like my mind, my mind just like breaks it down into like the building blocks of what it is into like an almost obsessive way. So like with comedy, I really like 
before I did my first open mic or whatever, I really wanted to understand what makes a punchline a punchline versus just another sentence. So I, I think that's where it's definitely helped is that it's just made me very obsessive about trying to get good at something. And that's that's where the two overlap, like the academic brain and the comedy brain. I think the uh, the deconstructing is really interesting. I think if you um, if you look at lots of comics who went to Oxbridge, um, a lot of them are so brilliant at looking at the form, deconstructing that form, and then putting it back together again to create something better, to create something different. Um, People talk about the kind of, you know, the privilege of going to Oxbridge, but actually a lot of them are just really clever, <laughs> you know, and so you're <laughs> Stuart Lee, you're Richard Herring, Alex Horn, Tim Key, um, Josie Long, John Robbins, you know, a lot of them are, are Jimmy Carr, you know, people, people don't realise that Jimmy... Uh, because they think of Jimmy as Jimmy Carr. They don't realise that actually he's got that incredibly analytical, incredibly brilliant brain that comes from being someone who was, you know, quite academic at 17 or 18. Yeah, I think I think it's also, it's a, it's a type of intelligence as well, like being, like doing comedy. Because, I mean, obviously it depends on the type of comedy that you do and stuff, but it's like, um, like let's say for example, like observational humor where you're looking at the world around you and making commentary like being able to do that and essentially point out why things that people do are ridiculous or things that people do are funny or what if they people did things like this it wouldn't be the same it's like that in itself is a very analytical way of seeing the world that lends itself to humor yeah i think the other thing as well and i think robin you'll probably know exactly what i mean here because i think we I think I've developed a really good uh, emotional intelligence, but also, and by that I mean, so that's the, the that's the therapy way of saying it. I, I've got a very good emotional intelligence. What I mean <laughs> is, I've got an amazing radar for bell ends now, like <laughs> an incredible, and and I imagine Robin because you do lots of comparing as well. I don't know if you have this situation where if you're on stage you can tend to find out which areas of the audience are the bellends and you can spot the way someone is behaving a little bit and you go, yeah, you are definitely a dick. I've started taking that into real life and like <laughs> walking down the high street, uh, driving along and I can see someone's wanky haircut in the car next to me and go, I'm going to give you some space because you're absolutely a prick. Have you have you developed that radar, Robin, as you've been doing stand-up? Yeah, I guess so. And since um, the more experience I've got, I think I've been able to deal with it better as well. Because I'm not particularly um, uh, authoritative on stage, I don't think, by the way I look or talk. I used or to find... Oh, uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, as a human being. <laughs> Words and actions. Yeah, exactly. Which <laughs> is just my very essence. Um, so when I was quite new, I used to, you know, if, I think people, mostly men, like alpha males, used to try and sort of, um, you know, heckle and stuff. And I think from someone who used to work at the Glee for so long and saw how people dealt with it, I used to try and go quite hard on them. To And that never really worked for me. Whereas now I can kind of kill them with kindness in a way. And I think that emotional intelligence as well, of as you were saying, 
when you know when you're speaking to somebody in a gig who you know they don't want to speak to you not in that kind of way of like they're not giving you anything back but and I've noticed it a bit more I think recently where they're qu clearly quite anxious because that they they have this perception possibly that if you're on the front row you're going to get picked on in that quite sort of late noughties uh Frankie Boyle type Jimmy Carr best hook heckle put downs compilation on YouTube type thing <laughs> which I don't feel like well it certainly is not my goal when I'm comparing um and I feel like that ability has has um I, I've got better at that knowing okay you you're clearly quite anxious I'm going to move on because it's not enjoyable experience and, and, that, and that anxious that anxiety will spread amongst the room and it seems I would never want to get a cheap laugh off somebody like that. I think mm. I'm, and that's probably me more confident on the stage. There's stuff I won't say now that I would have said before to get a cheap laugh because I don't think it's worth selling my morality in <laughs> to, to smash a gig. And I'm sure that I could do it in other ways by being nicer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky, you've not compared yet, have you? No, I haven't. I haven't. Need to take that off the list. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's one of those things that will definitely. Um, I think it, I think it's a good piece of advice for anyone starting comedy, is to to try and compare, not as much as possible, but to get into the habit of it because it teaches you to be loose. It teaches you to be in the moment. It, get, it can get you a lot of stage time if you can do it because, you know, you can go back and do regular gigs in places. Is it something that you'd like to do, Ricky? Yeah, it, it's a, it's a kind of thing where it's like, I know it'll be useful and I know I'll probably enjoy it, but it's literally just like taking the plunge and just doing it. I think as you were saying earlier about the fact that you kind of want to feel like you're, uh yourself on stage and you're sort of like in the moment i think comparing will definitely do that because you will be chatting to somebody and they'll a conversation will come up about relationships or job or whatever and you'll go oh shit i've got a bit about that and then it will seem that that beautiful thing where you're comparing where to an audience it looks like you're weaving magic in front of them <laughs> whereas really it's material it's gear that you've got it's managed to sort of like crowbar it in organically I think taking the plunge definitely is the best way to do it, as Oliver said. And also, like for, for me, when I moved to London and sort of to go full time, I I was only getting MC gigs in London because everyone was sort of doubling and tripling. And why would you give an opening twenty to me when you can get Hal Crutton to do it when he's off to his six gigs that evening? You know, like you might as well stay and and compare because it's as as Oliver said, it's it's great stage time and to be able to kind of work out the ups and downs of a room and you really get a read on an audience that way. And also you get to meet a lot of comics and see a lot of comics as yeah, well. Yeah. So mm. as, a, as a thing to do when you're starting, I mean, I'm biased, but I remember talking to Rod Gilbert very early who, who hadn't done much comparing. Um, and then he, when he started doing comparing, he said, it just loosens you up a little bit. It just makes you kind of uh, like Robin said, bring in different bits of material and also come up with bits of material. That's the other thing you want to try a new bit, um, a new line. If you think it's funny or not, if you're comparing uh, Ricky and you're introducing the headliner and you think to yourself, well, this headliner is going to smash it anyway. So I might as well try this new line and see what happens because that's only 30 seconds out of everyone's lives. And they're just about to have a lovely time watching Sean McLaughlin. So I can't fuck it up too much by doing it. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, here you go. Here's, here's Sean McLaughlin. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. To be fair. That's actually a really good way of seeing it. Like, um, I didn't even know. 
it's still also just the structure of a gig like wh who goes where is something i'm still not a hundred percent on because it's not something that people tell you you just turn up and you're put somewhere um robin you've uh you've run gigs uh have you got a system yeah, I suppose so. But in Cardiff, I, it's do they have to get the train back to London? Yeah, and if they do, then they can't do the gig. <laughs> we'll get them to zoom it in, don't worry. <laughs> um, like, I was quite lucky that I emceed a couple of gigs before I ran my own night. And I think that was quite nice because I didn't have to do the setting up of chairs and doing the ticketing and all that kind of thing. It was literally just, I think I didn't work out the running order, but I think that was... The first gig I emceed, Jared Hardy did it. And I think I put them on early because they were going back to Bristol. So it was that kind of logistics. And then um, at that point, I suppose that there aren't, it was, it was like my generation of comics. And I suppose we were all kind of like at a similar level. Like you just sort of put people on basically a as a timing thing. But that does mean that like the open mic gigs we did were, often very, very different. And, you know, it was very up and down. Whereas now I think, you know, if I was running my own gig, you know, I'd book a headliner, I'd compare, and then book probably like a really good local act to open and two newish people in the middle. But that's a quite a traditional kind of comedy club setup mm. as opposed to sort of like a eight to 10 strong new material night. Like I'm starting a Zoom one. Well, I've started one with um, SLCs and we're just kind of, it's just a bit like, you can go there, you can go there. Maybe I'm just phoning it in now. I've no idea. No, do you know what I think... <laughs> I think the thing to do is you have to be as flexible as possible because uh, because it's difficult. And, you know, we are in this weird world, but we've also always been in this weird world. You know, me and Ricky live in Bristol. You live in Cardiff. People do have to get back to London. And yeah. if that means I have to put on... If someone could, if, if a really good act can do an Edinburgh preview for me, but they have to be away by nine o'clock to get the train and that means that I get to have Sarah Barron or Joe McNally or anyone. I'm like, yeah, bung them on. Uh, Rosie yeah. Jones will bung them on first and then we'll just swap it around and get the open spots on at the end. Cause I'm like, I just want to get these people. But I guess you've got, you've got that experience to know that that will be fine. Whereas I think maybe starting out doing a, doing a newer gig if, as, as a newer act, you would go, well, th th there must be sort of like a method to it. I mean, I remember like starting out and, and the compo always going, who wants to go on first? And I think it might've been Ma Matt Reese or somebody was basically saying, yes, just say yes to going on first because you need to get good at that. That's going to be the hardest spot do it and then everything else is going to be and i'm seeing as well i'm seeing an opening are technically the hardest until yeah. you're sort of headlining a late night drunk gig <laughs> um, but learning to open is again like because that, that's where you're going to get work isn't it like, absolutely to go from middle 10 is going to be an opening 20 but then ricky you have situations so lee evans used to do uh the glee clubs um, in Cardiff and Birmingham uh, when he was working on new material for his, you know, Uber tours, his mega sellout, ginormous venues. He'd start earlier on in that year at the Glee Clubs doing tiny bits, 20s in front of 400 people, and he'd build up the material. But he'd always insist on going in the middle. So oh, really? he would never want to headline those gigs. He would always go in the middle of those gigs. And sometimes like the audience would be there because they'd know he was there and he'd do 45 minutes of the best material you could see by <laughs> one of the best comedians in the world. And then the compare. And I, did you ever compare any of those Robin? 
No, but my first ever bar shift was a Lee Evans night. <laughs> so the first ever time working at a comedy club where he was doing stuff in the middle. And I'm sure what you're about to say is what I'm thinking. And then the headliner would have to go on afterwards and headline after Lee Evans, which was absolutely wow. amazing. But to, but to a room which was probably about a third full at that stage as well, because people just, I remember the, that first weekend, John Fothergill was headlining and everyone just sort of fucked off, especially because he was doing sort of like 90, I think he wants 90 minutes in the middle. <laughs> and it's, and, but as, as, as he said, it was, it was amazing and they were coming to him. He got a standing ovation onto the stage. Wow. It was, it was mad to see that work ethic as well. Like it was, um, it was pretty amazing. That, that working there was such an education for me. Yeah, the Glee, I mean, the Glee clubs are great clubs anyway, but when the Evans used to do that, Ricky, he would come down on a, was it usually a Wednesday to a Saturday or was it a Thursday? To a Thursday, a th- Thursday to Saturday, yeah. And they were always, you know, 450 sold out, 450 sold out, 450 sold out. Um, and it was just wild and he would he would work on the material every day and he would because that's the other thing is and i think that's i imagine one of the things when this podcast goes along that uh at the moment ricky's in this beautiful position of just like i just love doing stand-up i really like it i like having fun i like going out um and then about two years in when i remember uh russell howard listening to every Edinburgh show he did and then transcribing it during the day and then doing it again. And like the effort that some of these people, um, I know James Acaster used to stay with Angela Barnes quite a lot when he went, when he was gigging down in Brighton and Barnes, would say that Acaster would just constantly writing, constantly, constantly working. The the effort that the good people put in, um, it frankly astounds me. And I can't, I can't see the point. I think they should. <laughs> what's the fucking point? Come on, chill out, everyone. It's meant to be fun, but they, you know, that's the moral. <laughs> that's Don't the- work hard, kids. Sack it off. I thought <laughs> I was meant to. I thought I was going for inspirational teacher. Shit. <laughs> yeah. I think you're going for a cool supply teacher now. Where like the the cap is on backwards. <laughs> yeah, smoking a cigarette, guys. <laughs> They're all lying to you. You need to lie. Call me Mark. <laughs> I've, gone... <laughs> I've gone from Michelle Pfeiffer to Jack Black in approximately yeah. forty minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, Ricky, is there anything else that you want to uh, to ask Robin? Is there anything that kind of bits of advice, things that you've been thinking about? Um, maybe Zoom gigs or or material? Because Robin is is like a proper writer person. Is there anything else that you want to ask? Yeah, actually, uh, about the Zoom gigs thing that you're talking about. Um, how do you feel about those? Do you think they're like they're useful for someone in my stage trying to improve? Do you think that it's something good for all comedians to be doing or is it just kind of filling the time essentially until we can go back to live? Like, what are your thoughts on it? I think th- I think it is probably filling the time. But weirdly, I feel like for me, it's definitely been beneficial to do them. I've done, I've, I said yes to everything I've done and I, and I run two, like I compare two of them now myself. And I've written stuff in the days ahead of those gigs that I wouldn't have written before. Um, I've learned how to get good at comparing them and I feel like I'm good at performing them now and I know what works and stuff. 
I did some corporate ones before Christmas, which like paid nicely. So that was that was decent. But I think it's just another skill, isn't it? It's another skill to add to your bow. And like if, if that helps you in, in the real world, whether you've written a great joke that worked on Zoom. I mean, if any joke that works on Zoom, you'll have to try in real life anyway, because <laughs> it's so specific. Um, you know, it's such a specific medium. But yeah, I guess it, I, I can't see why it wouldn't hurt. It, I, I was chatting to, I did this um, an interview last week and I wonder whether, I just sort of said it out loud when I was talking to this um, journalist, but I wonder whether it might help for Edinburgh sort of progresses. Like I've seen a couple of comics, like Carl Donnelly quite early on in the first lockdown, did like a work, did a work in progress, I think just on Facebook Live on his Facebook fan page. And he just sort of did material did an hour to people that he knew liked him to work stuff out and you know during previous season when you drive four hours to do a gig in the middle of summer when England are playing in the Euros and you're not and it gets cancelled why wouldn't you just put on a Zoom gig now now that we know they work to 15-20 people in a Zoom call why why is that not a better use of your time Mm. so I don't know whether there is life beyond it I think it has shown that they work properly I mean the, the proper ones work the first ones I was doing when they didn't have p- people in the audience in the zoom call was just like shouting at the fucking moon. It was just, it was horrid, <laughs> but I, but I think that they absolutely have their value for sure. And I think that sort of travel time, why not, why not use that eight hours that you'd be driving writing and, 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 and working on a new, and it's never going to be the same, but they do work. And for me, it's given me some purpose. I think if I hadn't gigged at all, during this point, but I think I would have gone fucking mad. Oh, that'll be really interesting to see what happens after lockdown's over. Yeah, I think you're right, Robin. Yeah, I, I, I think both of you are right. I think they do have a function, but I don't think they have a. I don't think that they have a function. They don't exist just on their own. I think that's the difference. I think. Mm. I, we don't want to live in a world where it's just Zoom gigs, and there'll probably be a situation <laughs> where someone could do brilliantly on Zoom. Um, and then think, oh, well, I'm a comic now, and then go into the real world and go, oh, oh, this is very different, you know. But combining the two, I think, is going to be the way forward. Seeing loads of, like, bitter circuit comics going on, it's just a Zoom comedian. (laughs) (laughs) One of these Zoom comics who thinks he knows what's going on. (laughs) Have you done many, Ricky? Have you done many of the sort of work in progress or open mic things on Zoom? No, I haven't. I literally haven't done any. Like, I am... I actually, I'm planning on doing some. I'm just going to look out and see if there are any available. But do you I, want to do my next one? Where, when is it? Um, let me see. Friday, the 19th of February. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll probably need to watch a couple first and see how to tell jokes. But yeah. yeah, no worries, man. I've, I've, I've got a recording of the last one I can send you. And then me and Esith run this new material one, which you're more than welcome to watch or perform as well. Oh, so the thing that you've got Ricky doing, so is that the chapter thing? That's the chapter one. And then the Wednesday one is the more work in progress one. Is the work in progress one, yeah. But the, the the chapter one, I think, has been going a lot longer and it's a really nice gig. Like we have sort of like regulars in there. Comparing them is lovely because it's just chatting to people like they're on the goggle box sofa. And then people, and the lineups have been insane because people are doing it from their houses. There's someone who's always ran gigs in Cardiff. It's so nice not getting people reject it because <laughs> they can't be asked to travel for four hours there and four hours back. It's really lovely. <laughs> I did some warm up. I did some warm up for virtual audiences. Uh, sure. Have I got news for you and uh, and the voice? And 
just a lot of fun. Just, you know, so like you said, just chatting to people. Uh, I would give out my, uh, my Twitter. And so I would just have loads of people just tweet me yeah, uh, things that I could then just like, you know, just talk about and just stand up. It's just people talking to people. That was what Phil K would always say to me. I did a, a little tour with him when I'd been gigging for about a year and he's such an amazing comic and, an amazing person and crazy, but also amazing. <laughs> and his philosophy was, well, it's just people talking to people. And, you know, and when you take it down to that basic level, you go, oh yeah, it is. And that can be Zoom, that can be in a outside with no roof, or that can be in a, you know, a glee club or a, or a theater, just people talking to people. And you just have to work out how you create the product, the thing that you want to say in the best way, I suppose. It's really lovely. I was just laying it pause because it felt like the natural end to an episode. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was wiping the tear out of my eye. Um, if both of you could now stand on your seats and say Captain McCatchy. <laughs> He's, done it. He's done it. <laughs> He's done it. He's done it. Shit. This was all yeah. a ploy. What an, that's like an Edinburgh show. What an ending. <laughs> it's full circle. That's up an inconsequential thing at the start and fuck he's got us. What a, what a joy. You cannot have people stand on their seats in an Edinburgh show. That is a health and safety nightmare. Yeah, and I did my first hour in the caves. You would hit your head on the roof of that, that drippy, that drippy mouldy ceiling. <laughs> and maybe that's why Zoom gigs are good because you know I can I can do that. People can stand on their own sofas at home and say, "Captain, oh, my captain," um, and we would uh, we would absolutely nail it. Um, Robin, thank you very much, Ricky. Uh, this is uh, this is the first. Uh, uncle supply teacher guest mentor um we can but they can choose who they want to be robin's not comfortable being uncle so are you happy with guest mentor yeah, or sensei guest mentor whatever works hold on back <laughs> off you can't have a guest sensei this week's guest sensei is rob no fuck off i'm the sensei <laughs> sorry sorry junior sensei I'll be Uncle Sensei. I'm fine <laughs> with Uncle that. Sensei. Uncle Sensei. <laughs> I'm more than happy with that. Um, Robin Morgan, thank you very much for uh, for taking part. Thank you very much for um, for helping. Um, and uh, and we will definitely uh, have you back on again soon to see uh, just how the mentee, the senso, <laughs> is uh, is developing. I'm very excited, Ricky. I'm a huge fan of yours, man. It's going to be a fan of yours too. I can't wait. Uh, take care, buddy. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. 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 My captain.